Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Chapter 29 I haven't the faintest idea where the transcendence is, Baz shouted, pounding a hand down on the table. They'd moved to an upper room of the house. It was Maeve's, apparently, the one where she'd raised her family, a family she'd been pointedly unwilling to speak of when Baz had asked after them. Not so loud, murmured Emma. There are still a few warriors downstairs. While Maeve's antics had Baz wound up too tight to sit, Emma was perched on the edge of a chair that was pulled up to the same table Baz had just struck, a small, circular surface made of cracked, faded wood. Emma had wriggled out of his embrace after Maeve's announcement had brought all eyes in the room back to them. Some of the red that had bloomed in her cheeks still remained. She smiled at him apologetically when he glanced at her, though. She looked tired, but her demeanor suggested no regret for anything that had happened during their frenzied dance. Baz wasn't nearly so certain. Not that he hadn't enjoyed himself. Before kissing Liana back on the Iron Dragon, he'd never so much as shaken hands with a woman, much less, well, whatever it was he and Emma had been doing during that dance. He'd enjoyed it. But that was just the problem. He'd grown up with Liana, and while his feelings for her had crept up on him largely unannounced until the moment their lips had touched, Baz was quickly realizing just how much she had meant to him. It seemed ridiculous after Liana had all but admitted she intended to turn him in for execution, but showing any intimacy at all toward Emma felt like a betrayal of Liana. Don't be coy with me, Maeve snapped. She'd combed her hair and now looked just as well-seasoned and as imposing as the first time Baz had seen her. Now that they were alone again, Maeve had returned to treating him like a five-year-old, rather than the hallowed dragon rider she'd made him out to be. I know Tessa told you the transcendence is in Liamina Library. Emma's related everything about you to me. Everything about him? Baz cocked an eyebrow at Emma. She shrugged, though now she refused to meet his eyes. That was another thing that concerned him. He enjoyed looking at Emma. She had a certain attractive glow about her. But he barely knew her, and he remembered the look on her face upon learning that he'd been given a task for which she'd yearned all her life, seeking out the declaimer's transcendence. And there was the minor detail that she'd wanted to kill him the first time they'd met, Bloody burning books! He had a thing for women who wanted him dead. And don't you be coy with me, Baz said. He'd made his choice by taking that book from Maeve's hand. Emma had been right enough about that. But it seemed no matter where he turned, someone was always seeking to use him. Maybe all those others down there jump into hornets' nests when you crook a finger at them. But you need me, Maeve. I'm not going to hop every time you shout frog. 
Maeve's expression resembled what Baz imagined the inside of a raging oven must look like if one could live long enough to see it from the inside. I need you as much as a library needs a fire in its speaking room. No! Baz snapped, hitting the table again. This time, Ebba didn't try to soothe him, and Baz suspected that if he looked at her, she'd be glaring. Too bad. He had to show Maeve he wasn't just another one of her unquestioning followers. You need me because I can read. All those people who were downstairs might be devoted to your cause, but I wager not a single one of them can distinguish a word of destruction from creation. What makes you think that? Maeve said, lips thinning to a razor's edge. Because, Baz said, I don't peg you as a merciful person, Maeve. Certainly not one to let a threat to your cause walk away with breath in his lungs. Unless, that is, you really need him. Why is it, exactly, that you didn't kill me for letting Liana escape? Maeve flexed the fingers of her right hand, as if wishing to draw the knife she still kept tucked in her knotted belt. But she said nothing, and her knife remained where it was. The thing is, Baz said, I can't work out why you need me. Tessa told me the big secret. I'm nothing special. The ability to wield the Trinity's powers isn't unique. Anyone can do it. They just don't because Actus Torchsire spread a lie that has soaked into the collective consciousness. Do those people down there even know? Know that they can all be just like me? Why haven't you just raised an army of cusses, Maeve? You think those people down there are ready to hear that, boy? Not only that they've spent their lives under the heel of the readers, but that they've been put there because of a lie? Do you have any idea the sort of chaos that would cause? Baz wanted to say that they deserved to know the truth, but he was painfully aware of the damage truth could cause. And even if they were ready, Maeve continued, don't start acting like the nincompoop you were back at the Iron Dragon. You think anyone can just wield the power of the books like you? Can't they? That's what Tessa said. Faw, boy, you don't even know the gifts you have, do you? Can anyone be a blade master? Can anyone write a novel? Can anyone be a king? You can't just give anyone a few lessons, or even a hundred lessons, and then toss them in front of a shadow breather and expect them to live, much less succeed. Gifts? Baz had always viewed his ability as more of a curse. Sure, it had helped him out of a few scrapes, but it also put a perpetual hangman's noose around his neck. Yet, there was a part of him, a part he wanted to hate, that felt something satisfying at being told he had a gift. No one had ever suggested there was anything special about him before. And maybe you're right, boy. Maybe I have restrained myself from slitting your impudent little throat because this cause needs every advantage it can grab. But even a hundred others like you won't get as far. But you know what will? A declaimer. One who can summon the elements even in the absence of spoken books. A declaimer could open the skies and rain lightning upon the heads of our foes, boil the oceans and crush fortune beneath waves taller than the great library, open the earth and bathe our enemies in exterminating flames. You think I'm not willing to let you die? I certainly would be if it meant finding a declaimer, which is precisely what I intend to do. Now, will you deny me? This is not my battle to, will you let the snakes kill all those readers back in erstwhile? Bess choked on his words, 
staring at Maeve in disbelief. How could she possibly know about the snakes? What is she talking about, Baz? Emma asked. What I'm talking about, Maeve said when Baz offered no response, is that Bastion is not here to fulfill his oath to your mother. He's here because he told a bunch of rebels back in Erstwhile that he was coming here to find a weapon to help their cause. But really, he just wants to stop them from poisoning the library water supplies in Erstwhile. Why in the scribe's name would you do that, Baz? Emma demanded, turning those cold gray eyes on him. Those eyes had held a passionate fire earlier as they danced around the cauldron, but now they looked much closer to how they'd appeared that day in Tome when she'd been prepared to order his execution. Because it's murder, Baz said, voice so soft he could barely hear it. Murder? Faw, boy, you should have thought of that before you let that conservator gallop away. Many thousands will die because of what you did, and you squabble over poisoning a handful of readers? Baz glared at Maeve, but felt his confidence waning. A shiver ran down his spine. Maeve sounded so much like Tax. He, too, had said this was a war and that people were going to die. He hadn't agreed with his brother at the time, but now another intelligent, if thoroughly unlikable, person was saying the same thing. Before Baz could formulate a response, they were interrupted by a knock at the door. Maeve gave an exasperated grunt, but shouted for whoever it was to enter. The room's door opened, and a woman stepped through. She was thin, with wispy auburn hair and a narrow face that showed premature lines of worry. Her belly was swollen with a child, nearly ready to come into the world. Her forehead was branded with the tree of creation. Her eyes widened when she saw Maeve wasn't alone, and she bobbed a curtsy toward Baz. A curtsy? He was appreciative of the room's shadows that hid his burning cheeks. No one curtsied to a slave. Pardon me, midwife Maeve, the woman said, curtsying even lower than she had to Baz. She pronounced midwife with the same reverence that Baz had heard the portly boys use earlier. I just wished to tell you that, well... The woman shuffled her feet and glanced toward Baz and Emma again before looking down to the floorboards. "'Go on, child,' Maeve said, with more tenderness in her voice than Baz had imagined her crinkled vocal cords capable of producing. The woman nodded, not looking up. "'Well, with the exterminating angel's plan now in motion and the warriors ordained, I've been reconsidering my decision to accept the mother's choice for my... Her voice trailed off again, her hands going to the round of her belly, caressing it as if the child inside had already been born. Perhaps there's a future for him after all? She looked up, eyes full of an innocent hope that made Baz feel as if he was intruding on the most intimate of conversations, though he didn't understand why. Maeve nodded solemnly, the room's firelight playing off the planes of her face and giving her profile the cast of an ageless sage. You alone can make the choice. I only carry out the mother's wish. The woman looked back down to the floor as if chastised. Yes, of course. I understand. I apologize for disturbing you. She turned and began to exit. But Constance, Maeve said, if I were the one with the round of life within me, 
I'd make the same choice in your position. The woman's shoulders sagged as if relieved of a burden, and she nodded her head without turning. She inhaled sharply in what might have been a suppressed sob and left the room without looking back. Baz aimed a questioning glare at Maeve. When she gave no indication of explaining what had just occurred, he turned to Emma. Her eyes were cast onto the tabletop, her fingers playing with a knot in the wood. Midwives are revered amongst the speakers in fortune, she said. They're one of the few people who can give them any true opportunity of freedom, not for themselves, but for their unborn children. Baz furrowed his brow, still not understanding, but there was something the pregnant woman had said. Your dagger! Emma called it Mother's Choice back at the Iron Dragon, and the woman just now... Oh, broken files! It's a mother's right to choose her child's path, Maeve said, voice harder than an oak branch supporting a noose, even if the choice is to make it a short one, doubly so for most speakers who are given no say in whether they're to bear a child. Baz had barely eaten that day, yet still felt ready to bring up the contents of his stomach. Not many take it, Maeve continued. You see my gray hair? I've held the distinction of midwife for quite some time, yet there are only twenty-three knots in my belt. I count each one a liberation. But it's murder, Baz said. Those children ought to be given the chance to choose. Choose what? Maeve snarled. Lifelong oppression ending in an unjust death? Or perhaps they'd prefer a life of blindness where they're bred like dogs? Baz returned Maeve's umbrage with a scowl. He wanted to retort that he had escaped that life, and those unborn children ought to be afforded the same chance. But his circumstances were the culmination of a series of all-but-impossible events, and he hadn't even pursued this course willingly. He'd have been more than happy to stay in erstwhile the rest of his days, keeping out of sight of anyone who might lower his chances of continued breathing. At least, he thought he would have been happy with that. Now, he wasn't so sure. As much as he still lamented the life lost to him, would he willingly return to it, knowing what he knew now? More to the point, could he really begrudge a mother who chose not to bring a child into such a life? So, I will ask you again, boy. Will you deny me? Refuse to search for the one thing that may actually bring us victory in this struggle? Maeve, Emma said. Don't speak so. The transcendence would be a blessing, but one way or another, we will be the downfall of the readers. Baz resisted the urge to snort derisively, and even Maeve leveled a glare at Emma until she looked away. So Maeve wasn't a blind zealot. She knew she was walking into the fire-breather's lair with little more than a bucket of water for defense. Even if I do agree, Baz said, drawing Maeve's eyes back to him, what do you honestly expect of me? I might not be from here, but I've heard the stories. Liamina Library is nearly as large as the entire city of Erstwhile. Saying I know the Declaimer's transcendence is in there is like asking me to go retrieve a guilt you dropped somewhere in the Inkwell River. The transcendence will almost certainly be in Farston's personal study, Maeve said. How could you possibly know that? Bess snapped. His anger came from multiple directions now. Anger that he was beginning to think Maeve was right to offer the choice she did to expecting mothers. 
anger at Maeve having publicly committed him to find the declaimer's transcendence in a handful of days after Emma's family had spent the better part of three centuries searching for it. Anger that he knew Maeve was using him, yet he was still about to go along with her scheme. And, perhaps weighing upon him heaviest of all, anger at the death of his old life and the birth of a new one he wasn't sure he wanted. No, Maeve snapped. I don't know, but I've a brain, and I've used it, boy. It's a trick you ought to try. I think you may actually have one beneath that iron-clad skull of yours. It's common knowledge that the Declaimer's Transcendence is not a book of the Trinity. It's just a common writing, full of history and prophecies. For as big as Liamina Library is, its spoken books are confined mostly to its speaking rooms, as are the books of any library. Little else is stored in speaking rooms, so it won't be in any of those. Baz huffed out to his nose. Just the fact that Liamina Library had speaking rooms, plural, emphasized how enormous it must be. Not a single library in erstwhile, not even Xavier, had multiple speaking rooms. Yet common writings, Maeve continued, won't be just strewn about the library either. The written words still worth its weight in gilts, even if the words carry only knowledge and not the Trinity's power. And Farston's no fool. Everyone's heard the tale of the Transcendence, and while most think it a fable, I doubt the leader of Oration's most powerful library has overlooked the fact that he possesses a tome out of legend. So if not his personal study, where else do you think he'd keep it? Baz wanted to hit the table again, but constrained himself to merely rapping on its surface with the edge of his closed fist. He yearned to retort that it could be in any of a dozen other secure places in a fortress the size of Liamina Library. For that matter, if Farston actually realized how important the book was, he might never let it out of his sight. Paz laughed, just imagining that he might have been sleeping mere paces from the Declaimer's Transcendence, tucked into a trunk in Farston's wagon. What? Emma demanded, scowling. Everyone who was down in that room, including me, has been waiting their whole lives for this moment, Baz. If you're not going to take it seriously... She trailed off, but there was literal fire in her eyes, reflected from the hearth across from her. Once more, he was reminded of how she'd looked when ordering one of her subordinates to slit Rox's throat back in tome. His rapping fist on the tabletop changed to a nervous drumming of fingers. Sorry, it's just... Sometimes laughing's all I can do in the face of such... He was going to say madness, but Emma likely wouldn't find that any more acceptable than his laughing. Anyway, he hurriedly said, turning to Maeve, even if we assume you're right, that we know exactly where the transcendence is, that's almost no better than where we started. Were you not listening to what I said just now, boy, about using your brain? Baz looked up to the ceiling repressing the urge to start praying to the scribes. Enlighten me, then. Raise your hand if you've even been inside Liamina Library before, much less know where Farston's study is. He gave Maeve a defiant stare, that is, until she gave him a toothy grin and raised her hand. Bah, fine, but that still doesn't put us any closer to getting in. Maeve lowered her arm and turned to Emma. I thought you said he was intelligent. Emma looked down at the table, but that didn't stop Baz from seeing the smile cross her lips. 
better than the way she'd been glaring at him moments before, but only just, considering she was certainly smiling at his expense. No, I said he was good at finding his way out of tight spots, though, naturally, that means he puts himself into such situations with some regularity as well. Maeve shook her head as if she felt she was dealing with a bunch of idiots, which she likely did. I'm midwife for all the speakers of Liamina Library, and they have a veritable army of them. Between those forced to warm the beds of readers and those used solely in the library's propagation program, faw, she spat to the side, there's nearly always some woman who needs my services. There's no fewer than three at the moment. I can get us into Liamina Library whenever you please, or, more accurately, whenever I please. She gave Baz another grin, though this one didn't reach her eyes. Baz rubbed at the bridge of his nose. He really needed to start thinking further ahead. When he'd left erstwhile, he'd abstractly thought to make an effort at finding the transcendence, but he'd never really worked through what it would truly entail, namely breaking into the strongest library in all the triumvirate. He really needed to stop going out. It wasn't safe. He slumped under the chair next to Emma, who patted his arm. Good, Maeve said. At least you seem to finally be absorbing the magnitude of the situation. Magnitude? I guess that's one word for it. Emma's caress on his arm turned to a pinch. Ah, sorry. What I meant to say is, I wish we had more time to plan. That certainly had not been what he'd meant, but he was quickly learning that with Emma, you needed to stop before you even broke ground, or else the hole you'd dig for yourself would quickly become too deep to climb back out of. Time is not our friend, Maeve said. The Congress starts in eight days, and we have to assume Farston will get here at least a day before, if not sooner. The faster we move, the better. I can't take you to Liamina until tomorrow evening, though, so you'll at least have the morrow to plan. Why so late? Emma said. You think I can keep up my appearances by only snooping about Liamina Library? I've got three appointments tomorrow with expecting mothers at three other libraries. Oh, Emma said, eyes dropping back to the table. It's one of the only advantages we have, Maeve continued. We're invisible. The readers forget we even exist unless they're ordering us to do something. We have to stay that way, if only for a little longer. Bess chuckled, but quickly held up a hand before Emma could take offense again. I'm not poking fun. I'm actually a bit impressed, using the reader's hubris against them. Who'd think a midwife of all people could turn out to be their greatest undoing? You almost make me feel like we have a chance. Maeve's stony expression twitched for the briefest of moments. What? Baz asked. Maeve just raised her brows at him as if she didn't know what he was talking about. You said, we... Emma said, a smile in her voice that immediately drew Baz's eyes to her. The expression illuminated her face like the moon peeking from behind a cloud. Oh, Baz said, suddenly feeling very strange. I guess so. We. Oui. <laughs> it's funny. That's not a word I've ever had much reason to use before. Emma put her hand over his. Well, Maeve said, perhaps just a bit of the abrasiveness gone from her tone. Don't go losing yourself in dreams of fraternity and friendship. There's a lot to be done before we attack the Congress. Attack the Congress? Baz's eyebrows shot to his hairline. Of course, Maeve said. Liamina's got an amphitheater the size of most libraries. Every reader who's anyone in the city will be in attendance to watch and listen. 
And every harbor, Baz muttered. Maeve snorted. Boy, do you have any idea how many readers there are in this city? Bess shrugged. Leamina's the largest. They've got maybe a hundred. There's six others. They probably range between forty and eighty. Let's be generous and say sixty on average. That's a bit more than four hundred readers, and each only has one harbor. Some of the lesser readers don't even have one, just ordinary guards. Now, how many speakers and illets do you think this city has? He was beginning to see where she was going with this. Even lesser readers usually have at least a pair. Three or four is probably average. Some of the most powerful have more. I've heard Farston has at least twenty. And that's not even counting all the retirees kept for breeding. So give us nearly fifteen hundred speakers, plus the retirees, which some estimate to be at least equal to the number of able-bodied speakers. And the latest census pegged the illets at around 15,000, though admittedly a few thousand of those are soldiers in the indomitable army. But even if only half the speakers and illets rebel, we've got more than double their readers' numbers, even accounting for loyalist speakers in the indomitable army. And that's just the population in the city itself. There are even fewer readers out in the country, but at least as many illets as in fortune. Baz drummed the fingers of the hand, not entwined with Emma's, on the tabletop. Those numbers made erstwhile sound like a village. He'd forgotten how much larger Fortune was. And having double the fighting force sounded promising. But this was about much more than a few hurried calculations. I've only ever really known one harbor, Baz said, but I'm pretty sure he could take ten speakers on his own if they don't have readers reading to them maybe closer to twenty. I didn't say it'd be clean, Maeve said. No war ever is. She looked off into the distance as if remembering wars past, though Baz couldn't think of any war that had happened even as long ago as Maeve had apparently been alive. But we have a few who can read, she looked meaningfully at Baz, and we have surprise as our ally. All the readers will have servants with them and house guards, many of whom are with the warriors. That grin returned to her face. Wow, Baz muttered. No wonder they call you the exterminating angel. Maeve snorted. I'm not the exterminating angel, boy. Uh, you're not? But I thought that's what the warriors called their leader. It is, Maeve said, voice like unripe berries. You mean there's actually someone who gives you commands? Baz asked. He had to try extra hard not to start chuckling with satisfaction. He wouldn't be so incredulous if you'd met him, Emma said, frowning. So you know who he is? Of course I do, Emma sounded genuinely offended. He's the most. He's a man who values his privacy, Maeve interrupted, her voice sending a chill down Baz's spine. Searching for anything to draw Maeve's attention away from the topic of the exterminating angel, he asked the first question that came to mind. How do you intend to coordinate all this? It's not like you can pass notes to all the warriors. The perilous expression that had crossed Maeve's face at mention of the exterminating angel vanished, replaced by one of utter neutrality, and Baz immediately knew she didn't intend to answer that question. And why? She couldn't afford to risk one or both of them being caught breaking into the Amina library and having the attack plans tortured out of them so not nearly as confident as she seemed. Maeve must have seen in his eyes that he knew. 
Almost imperceptibly, she darted a glance at Emma, then back to Baz. Was this actually happening? Was she silently imploring he keep his mouth shut? Did she honestly think he was inclined to do her any favors? But bloody-burning books! What would revealing his realization accomplish? He already knew breaking into the library was madness, even if he was impressed at the sheer effrontery of her plan. What about the conservator militia? Emma asked before Baz had decided whether he wanted to cover for Maeve or not. You're failing to account for what? About 4,000 conservators total? At least a quarter of them must be in the militia. Hmm, Maeve said. Now you're thinking, girl, but I have a plan for them. What plan? Emma asked. Maeve shook her head. Nothing you need worry yourselves with. The less you know, the better. Baz raised his eyebrows, but what she said next temporarily wiped all other thoughts from his mind. Now go to sleep. There's a bedroom down the hall there that the pair of you can use. Baz gulped. The pair of us? The grin returned to Maeve's face. Hello, friends. Welcome back to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is January 22nd, 2023, as I record this, uh, which is episode 25 of season 2 of the podcast and episode number 52 overall. I'm coming to you uh, at the uh, halftime of the uh, the Bengals and the Bills <laughs> playoff game. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll see I have my uh, old school Jim Kelly jersey on. Uh, Bills aren't playing quite as well as I'd hoped, but uh, we still have a second quarter of football here, so uh, so here's hoping. Um, all right, so hope you enjoyed Chapter 29 of Declaimer's Discovery. Uh, <clears throat> this week, i uh, got a couple things I want to discuss about it very quickly, but first let's go over the reading assignment for next week. Let's see, we'll be reading Chapter 30 of Declaimer's Discovery. And uh, chapter 31 is quite a, quite a long one. We might read chapter 30. I don't think I've ever done this before, but we might be read half of chapter 31 because there is really like two different parts to it. Um, so yeah, I think that's what we'll do. We'll read chapter 30 and then chapter 31, up to uh, the conservator's tale of Devonstare the Steadfast, and uh, unless you've read ahead, you won't know who that is yet, but you will find out. Uh, it'll become pretty obvious once you start reading into chapter 31. So there you go, the reading assignment for next week. Uh, let's see, other news. Uh, I have finished my edits on into the Dragon's Maw, Part 5 of the Spoken Books Uprising. Uh, that's off to my editor now. I am hoping to release that uh, by mid-March. I'll be announcing the official release date of that soon. The pre-order will, probably, will, will be coming out in a couple weeks, and I'll be doing a cover reveal in the newsletter uh, in a couple weeks as well. So if uh, you are not a newsletter subscriber yet, head over to dtkane.com, and you can sign up there for the weekly newsletter. Uh, if you do sign up for it, you will, uh, you'll also get to see all the, uh, the photos that I share each week. They're my, my personal photos, uh, from my photography hobby. Um, 
You'll also get to participate in my new segment, The Question of the Week. Uh, this week's question was, do you have any pets? And send me photos that I can share next week. So I have been uh, uh, inundated with lots of uh, very cute pet photos. So thank you, everyone who's participated this week. I look forward to putting together a little bit of a collage of all of those and sharing it in the newsletter next week. Um, and then, of course, um, you'll also get my fantasy quote of the week, um, which I always accompany with a short essay. Um, but before I get to that, just a couple uh, quick things I wanted to touch on here. First, just really quickly, this is not a political <laughs> podcast or a religious podcast or anything, obviously, but I did just, uh, you know, I wanted to mention, obviously, there is a portion of chapter 29 that touches on the, uh, the idea of abortion. Uh, we see the, uh, that the knots in Maeve's belt are actually, uh, she has a knot for every, uh, baby that she has killed at a mother's request instead of, uh, letting the baby be born into slavery. Uh, Baz obviously takes issue with that, thinking that it is murder, and Maeve is like, well, you know, would, is it better to let them be born into slavery or, uh, or, uh, go with the mother's choice and, uh, not let the baby be born into that terrible life that the, the speakers uh, live through. Uh, so I don't, uh, it was not my intent to come down on that argument one way or the other. I hope uh, I just got across that it is a, a, a difficult situation. That's all I was trying to express there. And also, uh, more to the point, that is actually a historically influenced. That story is actually from the Haitian slave revolution. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast before, or if you've read uh, one of the essays in uh, the ebook version of uh, the box set of the Spoken Books Uprising, books one through three, uh, you know, I uh, based some of the plot points in uh, the Spoken Books Uprising series off of things that happened in the real life slave uprising in Haiti at the end of the 1700s. You know, mo happened mostly in the 1790s and the first few years of the 1800s. Um, but that is a true story about the, uh, the midwife who, uh, you know, did the same thing, kept track of, uh, uh, you know, babies she had killed and thereby prevented from coming into slavery with the knots on her belt. So, uh, just a little historical influence there. Uh, again, not looking to start a debate here <laughs> or anything, but, but there you go. Um, far less controversial. I thought I would just give a quick note about uh, population in oration. You saw kind of that discussion <coughs> uh, there um, about kind of the the balance between, uh, you know, how many more illits and speakers there are in fortune compared to readers. Now, that's historically influenced uh, as well, there were far more slaves in Haiti than there were, uh, you know, white white planters or you know, free whites in general. Uh, you know, as many as like ten to one. I, f I forget the exact numbers, but um, maybe even more than ten to one. Uh, so that kind of imbalance, um, you know, that we saw that in real life again in uh, the historical uh, influence for story here. Also, if you were, uh, if you did some careful math there towards the end where I was totaling up, <coughs> you know, how many, uh, you know, folks on each side there were, that 
puts the population of Fortune at around 23,000, which, just to put that into perspective, that was the population of New York City in 1776, which is when the American Revolution started, uh, and that was the largest, uh, that was the largest, uh, second largest city, actually, I should say, uh, in America at the time. Philadelphia was the largest with 40,000, 40, so again, Fortune is about the same size as uh, New York City was at the start of the American Revolution. Uh, if you do some more extrapolating, erstwhile about 10,000 people, which would have been about the size of you know Charleston or Newport. Boston had 15,000 people, making it the third largest city in 1776. Um, <coughs> and so, and if you count it out, so number of individuals on each side of the rebellion. Uh, you'd have about 800 readers plus harbor, so 400 of each. You know, each reader has a harbor about, so 800 total. Also, I'll figure it, you know, about 750 loyal speakers. That's assuming about half the speakers would remain uh, loyal. Have about um, around 1,500 total speakers. Uh, then there's 3,000 people in the Indomitable Army that we heard about, and then uh, a little over 4,000 conservators. Um, so that puts uh, 4,500 uh, people ready for battle on the reader's side. Um, compare that to the rebels. So they would also have 750 speakers, but 7,500 illits um, in addition. So that gives them about 8,200. So again, that's where the about, about double. Um, you know, in addition to that 8,200... Um, there's about another 1,500 retirees, so they're going to be blinded, so they're probably not going to be that useful uh, in the uprising, but, uh, or will they? <laughs> so, uh, but yes, and then there's also another, those totals I just read, there's another 3,000 or so illits who are not accounted for on either side, so they uh, would either just be not fighting at all, I figured, or, you know, maybe some will go to each side and even it out. So uh, that's how I reached the conclusion that we read in chapter 29 that uh, the rebel side would have about double the manpower, though of course uh, the readers are obviously far more experienced in casting spells than a lot of the rebels will be, plus uh, the harbors are obviously a big advantage. You see Baz, it's like, geez, I think Rox could probably kill 20 speakers on his own if they didn't have readers reading to them. Uh, so we'll have to see how that plays out, but that's one thing that gives the Rebels a bit of a chance here. They do have raw manpower, so something to keep in mind as we keep reading through the book. Um, all right, so that is it for that. So why don't we move on to this week's quote of the week. Uh, and this week's comes from uh, V.E. Schwab, her uh, book, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. <clears throat> Uh, nothing is all good or all bad, she says. Life is so much messier than that. Um, as I was looking for quotes this week, I came upon this one and it brought to mind a Chinese proverb that I've heard from several different sources and it's you know, stuck with me, so I thought I'd share it with all of you this week. Maybe you'll get some uh, you know, use out of it as well. Uh, I've shortened it a bit, uh, but it essentially goes like this. <clears throat> a farmer had a prized stallion, and one day it ran away. Oh, how terrible, the townspeople told him. 
Maybe, the farmer replied. The next day, the stallion wandered back to the farm. How fortunate you are, the townspeople cried. Maybe, the farmer replied. A few days later, the farmer's son was riding the stallion when he fell off it and broke his leg. What bad luck, the townspeople lamented. Maybe, the farmer replied. Two weeks later, the emperor's army passed through the town, drafting young men to be soldiers. They left the farmer's son behind because his leg hadn't healed yet. So, uh, what's the moral here? Well, we can never foresee all the consequences of a single event, so it's best to take everything, both the good and the bad, in stride. Avoid the extremes. Nothing is ever the most terrible or the greatest thing that could have happened. Keep your perspective. Look for the good in everything, but don't permit windfalls to blind you to reality. Will this be the best advice you read today or hear today? Maybe. Uh, all right. Uh, and as always, if you have a fantasy quote uh, you would like me to uh, share on a future episode and in a future newsletter, you can email it to me at dtkane at dtkane.com. Uh, and that's all for this week. Uh, just a reminder, if you're interested in supporting the podcast and my fiction writing, uh, consider heading over to uh, patreon.com slash dtkane uh, and sign up to, uh, to be a monthly supporter of the show. Uh, your contributions are greatly appreciated. Um, and so that is all for this week. Uh, so until next time, when we'll be reading chapter 30 and half of chapter 31 of Declaimer's Discovery, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it, and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. D.T. Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com slash books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D.T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find D.T. Kane on Facebook at D.T. Kane Author or Twitter at D.T. Kane Author or send D.T. Kane an email at D.T. Kane at D.T. Kane.com. See you next week.